0: Hey, what's up? It's Alex Morgan, and for me, the start of the new year is all about commitment. Setting your intentions, restarting your routine, and committing to you from day one.
1: Body Armor Light, the low-calorie, zero-sugar-added sports drink. Shop now on Amazon.com. Blog Talk Radio.
0: Hey, everybody. It is June 6, 2022. And welcome to Big Blend Radio's Military Monday show. So every first Monday, you know, we have military historian and author, Mike Guardia. He's an award-winning author, not just an author, an award-winning author who has over 21 books out on the shelves. Like, seriously. Wow. Yeah. Uh, He's also a U.S. Army veteran, and he's also named Author of the Year uh, last year, 2021, by the Military Writers' Society of America. You may have seen him on the History Channel. Uh, Really, Mm -hmm. very cool show. Uh, And I think we can still see him there. But here's really an important thing. His latest book is out. It's called The Combat Diaries, and I hope you all get it. Uh, it's called The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II, and this really fits for today's show, which is dedicated to D-Day, the Normandy landings, and he's going to talk to us about that and also share a story from his book, The Combat Diaries, and I encourage you to go to his website, mikeguardia.com, also on Blend Radio and TV. You can listen to his past interviews, go to Amazon, all those great places, but welcome back, Mike. How are you, Military Mike? It's Military Monday with Military Mike.
2: Hello, ladies. Always a pleasure Hi. to be on the show, and I'm doing great.
0: Good, good, good. You know, we're in Lubbock, Texas. I think last time we talked with you, we were up in the Pacific Northwest in the rain, and now we're in like 100 degrees sunshine. I know. Pretty cool. And I'm jealous. <laughs> oh, you're in Minnesota. Yeah, what's the weather like? Because, you know, we got to plan our trip up there. What, what's it like? Yeah, it's
2: finally, it's finally starting to feel like summer up here. Let's see. Uh, I think the first day of, uh, like, uh, like full-term warm weather we had was last week where you didn't have to go outside with a jacket or at least a windbreaker on. But, uh, ooh, ooh. yeah, I've been in, the, uh, been in I, I think, the lower 70s all day today. So, yeah. Ooh, that's, nice. that's nice. Now.
0: That's yeah, nice. Yeah, Nancy and I, as soon as the sun comes out and you can feel that warmth, I don't care how hot it is, we're like... We don't care yeah, how burned we get. Just put us out there. We, <laughs> we need got... that vitamin D for you, you know. Um, I do want to go back to your History Channel series that you've been on, which is I Was There, and you were on the episodes about Johnson's Flood, uh, 1889, the Chernobyl disaster, the Battle of Stalingrad, and also the Oklahoma City bombing. I know that yeah. that series has aired And hopefully it will, you know, get picked up again. But can people still watch this on demand on on the History Channel online, or are they going to do rebunds? Sure, sure. Yeah,
2: so let's see. It is is available on demand if you have any type of DVR program or TiVo. I know you can see it there. Um, I think any Xfinity customer out there has the opportunity to go back and watch it on demand. Um, it's also available for streaming on Amazon Prime, oh. and if you go to historychannel.com, um, yeah, I know that you can see a few of the on-demand episodes that way. Uh, there, cool. there are, I know there are a few streaming services that you can get uh, priority access to the episodes on. Oh, I like uh, that. And, yeah, and as of right now, um, I know the production company is still in discussions with the network, to see if it's going to get picked up for a season two, but everything's looking good so far. So knock on wood, keep our fingers crossed. I really think that uh, it's going to go into a second season. And uh, I mean, if the first season was any indication, I mean, I think this series has a very long life ahead of it.
0: I do, too. I do, too. I mean, the Mm. whole series is is fantastic. Of course, we're, you know, partial to you being on there, but really the whole series is good from what we've seen. And um, Mm. I'm glad to hear about the streaming services, you know, because we travel, Mm. you know, so full time. So it's like, okay, when you get on your computer, they're like, well, Uh well, who is your provider? I'm like, I don't have a provider. But Amazon (laughs) Prime, that's fantastic because then they can go watch it on Amazon Prime and then turn around and buy your book. I right this is one Nanny place for my audio. Uh so this is great but the combat diaries uh, today being D-Day I think it really ties in World War Two history and you know we talked to uh, you were on the show with combat diaries and then also last month on with Doug and Nancy and Christy Wood and our friend Stephen Karen it was a nice big military uh, show for Memorial Month like Memorial Day but mm-hmm. Memorial Month is, uh, and um I heard you did talk to Doug a little bit. I heard that there was another phone call that we want We want the scandal later. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, that was a very cool show. I mean, it was. you know, it's like. Yeah, I
2: had fun with I, it.
0: Yeah, he, he's done it's so cool. much. And when I look at D-Day and the history of D-Day, which I want you to kind of give us an overview, because some of us may not remember exactly what went down on D-Day and how, why is it such a big deal? There's World War Two and then there's these specific right. highlights and D Day you know was June 6, forty four and we're mm-hmm. talking about the Allied invasion of Normandy, right? So mm-hmm. we'll right. talk about that. But this was like this also I mean, I think about Doug and he was a you know pilot and then he was on air carriers and all of these things, but then uh-huh. like when I was reading Jim Carroll's story in your book, The Combat Diaries, I'm like Dude, he had to be on, on, on you know, a boat, and he's like, I'm going to barf, you know. He's seasick, <laughs> and then, you know, has to, Night, you know, yeah. now fly in. But it's like as soon as he gets on the fresh air, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm over that. You know, I can go land here, but like, and then yeah. play with cows. But, well, you tell that story, but there's cows involved. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are. There's cows. Uh, but but what happened on D-Day and why? I mean, because from what I was reading, this took a few years to actually plan and then got delayed. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. So what makes D-Day so, so very important is that it is the invasion of the European mainland. And what you had here was a plan to really get a toehold on the European continent and uh, get the easiest access to the, to, to the borders of the German Reich. And mm. uh, there was just an incredible amount of planning that went into that because uh, the Axis powers, for their part, uh, they knew that once the Allies got a foothold on the continent proper, that it was only going to be a matter of time before they could inch their way to the outskirts mm. of Berlin, so mm. uh, both sides had an incredible uh, amount of their war effort riding on the success or or the failure of that mission. Um, so there was a lot of planning that went into that, and the delays. Uh, were mostly a function of getting the available equipment ready and also being able to find predictable patterns in the weather that would allow Mm. for enough of a window to get the majority of our forces ashore. Uh, So the fact that you had so many of those moving pieces to take into account and uh, so many actors who were planning so many different parts of the operation and being that you were really at the mercy of mother nature herself
3: uh, Mm -hmm. really
2: makes the invasion of Europe uh, just an incredible miracle. You know, Eisenhower himself said that it was the great crusade. And, you know, by every reasonable standard, I think he was right because, you know, you had uh, the biggest opportunity for allied forces to uh, get on the Nazis' home turf and really facilitate the end of the war. Uh, So that's why D-Day is so important. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you see how it played out, you know, you really get a sense of even the best planned operations never quite go according to plan 100% Mm -hmm. of the time because you not only had the initial bombardment uh, from the offshore naval batteries um, Mm -hmm. fall too far inland to affect any, Qualitative damage on the German defenses on Normandy Beach, but you know you also had airborne mist drops and paratroopers who were scattered all across mm. the northern edge of the continent, and it took them considerable time to regroup and actually find their parent units and uh, get some kind of a cohesive counteroffensive against the Germans and really start to make headway into the into the borders of Germany itself. Mm. Uh so yeah when you take all of that together it really makes for an outstanding military operation and one where individual initiative and stick-to-itiveness and perseverance really carried mm-hmm. the day and worked in the allies favor.
0: And even yeah, I, even though it was like the weather changed and daylight and I mean it was kind of crazy they had to not only like map what was going on on with the military and, and, you know, what what was going on with the Nazis and Germans and, you know, what was going on, but the weather just kept changing on them. So that has to do with the wind when you're, you know, you know, flying in and sailing in the weather plays this huge role. So it's pretty amazing how you have this plan and then you just keep going. And, Mm -hmm. adapting and adapting and that that resiliency you know amazing right also well
1: your your forces are split you know and so maybe the germans have most of their forces on attack not defense and so while our forces are trying to defend we had to have something to go out there to shut him down Basically, and so you're splitting forces. That's a hard decision to make. I wouldn't want to be the commander who goes, "Oh, let's take, you know, thirty percent of our forces over here on defense and put them on offense." Mm. You know, that's kind of a harsh. That's a hard decision.
2: It is, but in a lot of ways, I guess that is the. Reality of war, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the, yeah. the situation on the ground a lot of mm-hmm. times tends to be very fluid and, you know, you're in an offensive stance one minute and then hours later it can change to a purely mm-hmm. defensive stance. Uh, so, oh. <laughs> there's a, uh, yeah, so there's a, yeah,
1: so um, there's
2: a lot Crazy. of real-time planning and real-time decision-making that goes on and, uh, you know, your enemy's back can very quickly become his front Um Mm-hmm. Yeah, which uh, which makes it all the more um, impressive. I think that we were able yeah. to sustain the right. forward momentum of the of the Allied attack for as long as we did. You know, minus the small hiccup that we had in the Battle of the Bulge with the Ardennes counteroffensive.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, right. and then yeah. also it, when we look at it on the American side, well, so Rommel was in power, like on the military side under Hitler, right? So Rommel was of doing his thing. And then we had Eisenhower, who was not president yet. So we were under Franklin Roosevelt at that time, right, uh, during the uh-huh. day. And so Correct. this was this really like Eisenhower's mastermind? But then if you look at his allied forces, so it wasn't just him. He had to work with these other countries to make this happen.
2: Right. Yeah, and that, I think, is a pretty impressive feat in and of itself because Absolutely. you know Ike was – was a general, and uh, he was a general who had never been in a war before because mm-hmm. he had spent oh. the entirety of World War I stateside, and when he became the Supreme Allied Commander, he had to go over to mainland Europe, essentially, and tell all all, all of these British generals and field marshals who had had recent combat experience against the Nazis that, uh, hey, this plan that I have, uh, me, an untested um, non mm-hmm. non-combat general... Uh, this plan that I have that I plan to have carried out by a bunch of farm boys from Kansas and street kids from LA uh, is going to be the savior <laughs> of mainland Europe. So uh, he was definitely behind the eight ball when he took that position and yeah. uh, to coordinate not only amongst all of those allied partners, but to be able to push a lot of the decision-making authority down to the subordinate field commanders. You know, you had the likes of Patton and whatnot who were uh, you know who were organizing those forces in the field uh, just takes an incredible amount of leadership, intuition, and, and mm-hmm. uh, being able to being able to have a degree of diplomatic flexibility and knowing who it is you're dealing with and uh, knowing how to speak their language and be able to hit all of those little flashpoints that you know are going to motivate them to do the best job that they can.
1: Mm. Yeah, you know, because you think about it, if people look at you and you're not that well-known or, you know, you don't have the standing and Mm -hmm. the plan is kind of way out in left field, you know, if it's way out in left field, then maybe the enemy would never think you would do it either. That's probably the most, that would be the argument I would use if you don't think it can happen then Hitler doesn't think it can happen, so I say we do it.
2: Right.
1: You know, that kind kind of thing, like, it's not normal, so let's do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but at the same time, they were calculated, right? I mean, it wasn't just, no, it it is totally calculated, but
1: it's not normal, it's not normal, you know?
2: Yeah, and... (laughs) It's actually funny that you should mention that, Nancy, because uh, that harkens back to um, a quote that was attributed to a high-ranking German official. And for the life of me, I don't know whether this quote is real or whether it is an urban legend, but given my own experiences in the military, uh, I do think that there is more than a shred of truth to it. Um, accordingly, this one high ranking German general said, um, the reason why the American army performs so well is that war is chaos and the American army practices chaos on a daily basis.
0: <laughs> Welcome yeah. to my world. Well, <laughs> yeah. See? Well, yeah, you know, but that's, and, you know, it's, it's really, yeah, you that's know what funny. I mean? It's,
1: there's a. There's a talent in that. There,
0: there is a talent to that. There really mm-hmm. is. Because, ah, uh, like when you look at that's European warfare, it's very planned. Like everything seems to be very planned. And so, mm-hmm. like, you do not go, you do not color over the lines. Whereas America has the lines, will color over them, and then make a new line. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It, that's kind of how right. it feels to me. It's, and i think that's a brilliance and do you, like while all this is going on here is europe like you know hitler has his plans and i mean it, i mean look how look what putin's doing i mean they're they're one and the same kind of people at this point you know it's like
1: yeah
0: they they really are and it's just when you when you Look at this precision. This is how I'm going to do it. He's really thought it out. I'm going to do this, this, and this. Eventually, you're going to get you're going to get nailed. It's going to happen. Like you know, it just it, it, you're going to get nailed. Your your comeuppance will happen at some point. You know, Osama bin Laden. You got nailed eventually. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, like, these guys will get taken at some point. But it's so um, – they're so calculating, like, on the, on the, you know, Hitler side. And please, I'm not saying, you know, German people like Hitler. I'm talking about Hitler and Rommel and those two. Very, very calculated. But I think they were they, – do you think he looked outside the box beyond his
3: – Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better –
0: but was he able to keep up with the changes when America and England and France and everybody were connecting and we didn't have the internet. We didn't have fax machines. We didn't have cell phones. We, I mean, you've got to also think how the communication was for people to connect. I mean, when you think about how long the d day operation was in planning, you know, and then having to make shift as it happened, that's what I'm saying, this precision work of Hitler. And then at the same Mm -hmm. time, the rest of the world or the Allied forces gathering together. It's kind of interesting. Do you think Hitler was just so – did he know, like, did he realize he was going down at some point? Well, I mean, he took himself out, but you know what I mean.
2: Right, yeah. Well, I think by the time he finally realized what was going on, it was too little too late because if you take a look at – everything that Hitler did throughout his rise to power and uh, even his outlook on life before he actually became the head of the Nazi power, you know, he, he he fits pretty much every standard, every standard textbook definition of a clinical narcissist and Mm -hmm. a clinical sociopath. So, you know, when you have someone who is a qualitative narcissist and a qualitative Mm -hmm. sociopath, Uh, it is very hard for them to see anything beyond their own subjective reality. And getting them to change course, um, even for the sake of their own benefit, is like throwing darts against a brick wall. It is just not going to stick. So, you know, one of the things Mm -hmm. that uh, was his undoing, and I know that I'm paying a very broad stroke when I say this, is that, uh, you know, he did not want to admit when he had made a mistake and he He ignored the advice of his most seasoned generals and, uh, you know, continued to uh, make these hasty decisions that were not well thought out and didn't Mm -hmm. really consider the second- or third-order effects. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was only when he got the stunning realization that, hey, the Soviets are at my front door, and I have the Americans and the Brits closing in from the West, uh, you know, hey, game over. The only, the only uh, acceptable outcome in my mind, and of course, this is Hitler saying this at the time, you know, is just to, you know, save the last bullet for myself. And uh, if that doesn't kill me, I know the cyanide capsule will.
0: Wow. So, so you yeah. know,
1: that's the great realization that you have been wrong for so long. And something made him finally face the fact that he had made so many bad decisions. And even the idea, okay, let me take myself out, is egotistical. I mean, that's an ego move. Right. Yeah. But I'm glad he did it.
0: See, I I, I see, knew, him right huh? Sorry, I I see Putin frankly. right there.
1: Sorry, I do. I just see Putin right <laughs>
0: there. I do. I see him there. I see Putin just being exactly like on that same road of like, I'm just going to keep going and keep. And, and and everyone's starting to argue about that, too. And it's like, ah, mm. uh, you know, I just I hope we get some unity in this world like soon, because I think this is part of why I really wanted to do this show of D-Day was not just celebrate those who really were part of that and, and those who have fought in World War II from start to finish, everyone that was part of that. But, like, we need to look at what happened in World War I and Two, and look at it right now. I'm just saying. Right. I, just, I just really Civil feel War. that we have to look at that and, like, where did it get us, you know, and how many people mm-hmm. sacrificed their lives. And, you know, you sacrifice, you know, we just had Memorial Day. The Memorial Day is for those who lost their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it Veterans Day for those who are still alive, Memorial Day was, was for those who lost their lives. And in World War II, many did and many sacrificed and were tortured and, and all kinds of horrific things. When I mean, we go to Vietnam and as we keep going through all these different wars, like we've got to take a look and go – how does that affect not only the soldiers, men and women, and those, the, the contractors, and the medical crews, but how does that trickle down through families? So I just hope that part of this show today, I, I hope people realize, like, man, these Don't people going it. out there on D-Day, man, they had some cojones. I'm sorry, we're in Texas. We can say cojones, right, when we're in Lubbock? Of course. Can, yeah. of course. <laughs> say that. I always say that whenever we get to the Southwest, that work comes out. So you know, and, and we're in cattle country. So you know what I mean. Yeah. But get yeah. to it's say just, that. But you know, I, I just, I just hope that um, we look no. at this. I mean, it just, it just the war is so harsh and so real. And, and we, <clears throat> we
1: really, really have to watch who we elect. We need to do our homework.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We need to know who mm-hmm. we're putting into office. All the time, every time, at the state level, at the community level, at the country level,
0: and at we the want people with level. military experience too. <clears throat> Very important.
1: Well, so, yeah. well, we want people who have done some kind of community service, not mm-hmm. the ego person, mm-hmm. because those are the dangerous ones. Hitler, Hitler was the ego person. And you can take the the you can take his personality, and you can see it in other people, and you know those are the ones you don't want to elect ever. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, that's our opinion. So everyone's got other opinions too. So you know it's just, it's just an opinion. But we got to look at you know the men and women in World War II that we talked about that being the greatest generation, right, Mike? And we're mm-hmm. at that turning point of generations. Um, Jim Carroll, in your mm-hmm. book, was part of that great generation. And he great. since passed, what, he, five years ago he passed? Um, yeah. And was from Minnesota, mm-hmm. so not far from where you are. And uh his his story is, like, pretty crazy. I mean, you just, next thing you know, you're seasick and flying out of a plane and landing mm. in cows. <laughs> like <laughs>
2: Yeah.
0: Tell everybody because the combat diaries. Everyone in this book, the combat diaries. I think what's so great, and I always say this on shows with you, is it's true. You bring humanity into what war is about. Who are the people Mm -hmm. fighting for us and for others, and um, tell their story so well, so we can connect and also understand what war is about, and tactic and battle and. You know, and then of course you get into you know all the, you know, the fighter jets and things like that, but you also bring in who's flying those jets, who made them, and mm-hmm. what country got them after we had them. You know that kind of thing. So it's it's really fascinating to me. But Jim Carroll's story, tell tell everybody a little bit about it. And everyone, you need mm-hmm. to get the book with the full story and the other ones. Okay. But Jim Alrighty. Carroll's, yeah. How did you find out about him? Let's start with that.
2: Oh. Okay, so Jim Carroll, um he is one of the local veterans who actually provided his stories to one one of the local chapter leaders of the American Legion. Yeah. And uh yeah and uh he is uh and he is just an an incredible man um in the sense that you know he is both equal parts an ordinary everyday citizen and a uh hero who can rise to the occasion when the situation calls for it. Uh, So Jim Carroll, um, he originally provided his story to a gentleman named Al Zidane, who uh, just lives a few miles up the road from me. And uh, Al is a a driving force in the local chapters of the American Legion and very Mm. active in the World War II Roundtable, which is dedicated to preserving a lot of the oral histories of World War II veterans not just here in the Twin Cities area, but um, uh, across the continental U.S. Mm-hmm. And Jim Carroll's story really stood out to me uh, for the very simple fact that here was a paratrooper on the front lines of D-Day, and like many others who joined the cause for the Great Crusade, uh, came from a very humble and very unassuming background, and uh, you know just dug down deep to rise to the occasion when... The world needed to rid itself of the forces of fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jim uh, in, joined the military in 1942, um, not coincidentally after he and a few of his buddies saw a movie about paratroopers. And in the early 1940s, parachute infantry was a relatively new concept, um, but it uh, had all the panache of like the latest and greatest technology And, uh, you know, that was really the elite of America's fighting forces at the time. You know, here you were taking a soldier, throwing him out of a perfectly good airplane and Mm -hmm. uh, using the silk canopy to make him slowly descend to the ground. And this was done to achieve a concept that was called vertical envelopment and, you know, where Mm -hmm. you could essentially place um, a – frontline fighting force right in the middle of an enemy formation and facilitate its destruction without having to, uh, you know, plow too heavily through their frontline defenses using ground forces Mm. exclusively and, you know, just attracted to the lifestyle, attracted to the extra jump pay and, you know, attracted to the whole concept of, wow, hey, uh, being able to see the world from the third dimension from Mm. a parachute sounds pretty stinking cool well, he signed up for it and uh, was on the ground floor, so to speak, of the initial group of airborne units that were going through their training at Camp Dakota. Uh, coincidentally, around the same time that the men featured in Band of Brothers were going through,
0: oh, and wow. he's
2: assigned, of co- yeah, he's assigned, of course, to the 101st Airborne Division. You know, which, uh, huh. uh, by most standards, I think was the premier airborne infantry unit in in America's war effort, and uh, trained up in England uh, to to prepare himself for the, uh, for the allied invasion of Normandy. And, uh, you know, in the early morning hours of uh, th- that fateful June day, he was, you know, in the, um, he was in the aerial armada of these, uh, of these C-47s and, you know, these transport planes and gliders who were all making their way o- over the airspace in Normandy to affect the enemy's destruction. And, you know just the journey itself mm-hmm. to get across the English Channel and to get yeah. over Normandy proper i mean was just an adventure mm-hmm. in and of itself because you not only mm-hmm. had to deal with motion sickness you had to deal with the deafening roar of the engines um you had to deal with uh you know you had to deal with the nerve wracking realization that you know hey there's at least a fifty fifty chance that I'm not even going to make it out of the plane alive uh mm-hmm. you know that's adding to you know, that's adding to the intensity of the equation. And then as soon as you get over Normandy airspace, uh, you know, anti-aircraft fire starts erupting all around you. You know, you mm-hmm. have shell bursts that are exploding mere mere meters mm-hmm. from the door that you're supposed to jump out of. You're seeing planes to your left and right getting blown out of the sky. And, you know, once you're lucky enough to make it out the door, you know, that blast of cold air sobers you up. And as you're floating to the ground, you're seeing all these, tracer rounds coming up from the ground and you're thinking to myself my god i hope one of those tracer rounds doesn't hit me before i i I even uh i even make contact with the ground so you know he of course is among one of the lucky paratroops who makes it to the ground unscathed but uh you know once he's on the ground okay well the battle is still far from over because now you realize okay i'm in the middle of nowhere i really don't yeah, I don't have any idea where I am. Uh, some of my equipment exactly. may may or may not have gotten lost on the on the drop. I'm lucky enough to have a sidearm with me. Uh, let me try and uh, meander through the night and hope I can find some of my fellow paratroopers and hope that I don't accidentally run into a German soldier. Well, uh-huh. I'm trying to find my buddies and. You know, it, it makes for a little bit of color commentary, and I think a little bit of comedic relief, like much-needed comedic relief, you know, because you're already on edge. That uh, one of the uh, first living things that he makes contact with and almost lights up with his rifle is not a human being, but a stray cow.
0: No. Dude, seriously, this is so. And and cows can like you, they can, you can get cows with are you cool. too. No, they can't. I mean, we have our it's friend ball that ball. hikes the country yeah. and like really done some crazy gym, OSTIC And he goes, "It's not moo, it's new." Like <laughs> like no, like. Because, like you know, he's ended up in fields of cows. Where, like, when you go hiking, he walked across the country. He's a retired earth science teacher, and he walked across mm-hmm. the country on the American Discovery Trail. He bicycled. He bicycled the entire perimeter of the country. I mean, done the Pacific Crest Trail, most of the Appalachian Trail. He's crazy. He's a good guy. He's a hey, little touched. Lisa. You know, I'm just saying, Jim, you're a little touched. I know you're listening. <laughs> um, you know, I mean I mean this well. Lisa. But um, he got to order springs. He gets over the fence. And next thing you know, all the cattle look at him, and he's like, you that know, basically, oh, cool. crap, man, they're going to get me. And I know I've been chased by a bull. Only twice. if they drop their head. If they I've just stand chased. and stare, they're cool. But if they Stop. drop their
1: head, you need to run.
0: To this day, I do not own a red T-shirt anymore. Never. No. Never. I have been chased twice <laughs> in my life by a bull. It's I don't know what funny. that's about. But, like, here it is. I he lands, And when when I'm reading the story, I'm like, oh, crap. Seriously? You're going to end up in the field? I mean, like, because now you have to deal with that because they could turn on you or not and be sweet cows. But he is lucky. But But, like, at that point. You oh. don't know where your buddies are. Like when you land, yeah. you're gear, but where is the rest of who you trained with? Who you're supposed to be fighting with? Your team, your right. troops. Isn't that kind of a scary, weird feeling?
2: Of course, yeah. Because you know the anti-aircraft fire had had scattered a bunch of the planes. They really didn't mm. keep their tight. Uh, they they really didn't keep their tight formations. And you know when you have uh, planes that are scattering out for miles and you know dropping uh, dropping folks who were supposed to be in the same platoon and and uh, same mm. squad even, you know it's uh, it it's, it really becomes a chore at that point to try to find where your other people are, and uh, you know it uh, in a lot of ways it becomes a glorified version of Marco Polo you know you just mm. try and call out in the night and you find one guy and you're like okay well hey I'm in able company first of the 506, and uh, who are you and where you're from? Oh, yeah, well, I'm in Charlie Company, and I'm first of the 504th. Okay, well, we're two guys. We know we belong to the same division, but we're in different companies, and we're even in different battalions of different regiments, so uh, I guess uh, process of elimination. (laughs) I know you're not one of my guys, but let's see how many more of us we can gather up, and you're just picking up random people as you uh, meander your way through the night, and then eventually you get to a crossroads, and You'll know, you have a gaggle of maybe 12 to 24 people, and Mm -hmm. of that two dozen, you'll maybe find three guys who are from your unit, and I'm like, okay, well, I'll stick with you three guys, and we'll go off in this direction to try to find more of us, and uh, yeah, I mean, it just becomes this never-ending game of Marco Polo, but... You know, miraculously, uh, within a few days and even a few weeks, a lot of those units had ended up regrouping. And um, Mm. not only that, they had had set up some blocking positions to attack the Germans who were retreating from Normandy Beach. Membership
3: fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better?
0: You know, mm. I, when you said gaggle, like, all I could see, like, yeah. immediately geese. was, here geese. comes the geese and the mother hen, <laughs> like, the mother goose is, like, going crazy, like, get back into your team, get back, get back together, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be kind of freaky with that, like, you know, because you've trained in different ways, and everybody's trained for different things, and then you've got to think, you know, like, where we are now with warfare versus World War II. I mean, World War One was like, oh, here we go. Like, we're all learning, right? World War Two, we had learned oh, way much more. But, like, at that point, where was the training in? I mean, was it still kind of every man for himself, even though you're looking for your, your teammate? You know, when you think about that, you know, I'm just, just – I, I mean, I know we've had other wars and – Civil wars and things, I mean, obviously we had gazillions of wars throughout the world, but this kind of level of war when we have airplanes and tanks and, and things like that, was it a little bit different with World War II when suddenly you do wonder where the rest of your troop is and, like, how much training did you have to be able to stand on your own if you needed to?
2: Right. Well, you know, I think By and large, a lot of the servicemen who found themselves in that position were of the mindset: "Okay, well, I'm Mm -hmm. about as well trained as this army can afford to make me. Um, So I know I will stand; I'll be able to stand on my own for as long as I can. And you know, if I have a chance meeting with the enemy while I'm trying to find my comrades, well, so be it. You know, I will. I will go down swinging if I Mm -hmm. have to. Um, But yeah, I think the overriding." Mentality and the o- overriding mm-hmm. motivation was, yeah, I really want to find as many of my comrades as I can because mm-hmm. even though I, I can stand toe to toe with uh, a couple enemy troops here and there, I know that uh, my odds of survival increase when I talk about strength in numbers. You know, mm-hmm. the more of my squad mates, the more of my platoon mates I can find, the better because. You know, uh, like the old saying goes, two heads are better than one, and mm-hmm. teamwork makes the dream work."
1: And also, isn't there the the feeling that you're on the right side? You know, I'm looking at today, looking at Ukraine and Russia, and right. and I'm thinking, would you really want to be, oh boy, a Russian right now and be commandeered into an army doing something that you? Actually don't believe in mm-hmm. because right. it's not in you know, defense of Russia, it's not in defense mm-hmm. of your country it you know, so I think that makes a big difference, like when you know it's almost as you, you have no choice when somebody's attacking your allies and your mm-hmm. next, you need to do right. something. That's different than, oh, let's just go take over a country because I feel like it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it does help if you believe in the mission and uh, you know that you're on the side of Mm right. You know, because, because, you know, um, there was a saying that I used to hear in the Army all the time. And, yeah, it – it used to annoy me, but I think the older I got and the more I progressed through the ranks, uh, the more I really found out that it's true, not only in the military, but in in life in general. They say that perennial optimism is a force multiplier, and I think that goes hand-in-hand with hmm. uh, the optimism of really, truly believing in your mission, um, because that's what we're seeing in Ukraine and spades, uh mm-hmm. I remember now. I mean, granted, this war in Ukraine is barely 90 days old and how it ultimately ends up is really going to be anybody's call at this point. But right. I remember when it kicked off barely three months ago, uh, that most of the I'll say most of the talking heads out there uh, predicted that it was going to be a very quick Russian victory and that Ukraine was going to fall rather quickly. Um but, you know, yeah, well, the, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of us out there were telling ourselves at the time, okay, Russia might pull this off as a function of brute strength <clears throat> and sheer numbers,
3: but okay. don't
2: yeah. underestimate the resilience of the Ukrainians because <clears throat> they can be like dogs when they're backed into a corner. Right. Dogs are some of the most resilient members of the animal kingdom, and they will right. take an incredible amount of abuse from their owners. But the minute you back a dog into a corner,
0: oh, it will dog? lash out at the, you, oh, and dog. it
2: will go right for your throat. And that's exactly. exactly they know, and, they will, mm-hmm. and they, they will, yeah. and
0: they will. And yeah. when they know that you mm-hmm. – when they have a teammate next to them. And so yeah. someone can yeah. abuse a dog on their own, but as soon as – like Nancy – this, mm-hmm. Just honestly, when we lived in Kenya and I was a little oh, girl, wow. somebody stole mm-hmm. our, our German Shepherd Simba and she was our still kind of a young neighbor. puppy. Yeah, our next so door neighbor. They tell Nancy, the, well, not the next door neighbor, but the like township the over The guy behind you know, us. The guy, the right guy behind, behind us. us. And so she right. goes off in her nightgown. Like you can to think Nancy was in her 20s, like late 20s, <laughs> with, with a machete. <laughs> through the fields of Kenya, like seriously, this is like a true story. She goes out there and she saw this guy with Simba, our dog, our dog chained up and he was beating her and she was all cowering. As soon as she saw Nancy, she went for the guy's throat and just annoyed. And I'm like, go for like, it. That's it. And so and after yeah. that and when everybody saw Nancy running in their nightie through the fields <laughs> and with a machete, which we everybody had machetes. Um yeah. And pangas, which is like basically what you cut your lawn with because we didn't have lawnmowers. Yeah. We cut them with them. Anyway, um, yeah. they <laughs> called her a witch after that. The she white was, witch. Everybody the walked white to witch. the other side of the street when mm-hmm. they walked by our house, and she was a maganga, which is a, a witch. And she was like yeah. the white witch of this neighborhood of Karen where we lived.
3: But well, it, we it, never it had true. any trouble
0: that, after that. Simba, Simba would go but it's it, it when you have a partner and that goes with what you're saying with this teamwork yeah. of a troop, like you prisoner of war you can still have your backbone and strength but you you know you have to conserve as well when something goes on right. like you can't you don't want to give up everything if someone's captured you do you give everything at that point or do you you know what i mean it's a it's a right. interesting thing of what you do um I do want to ask you that I have a few questions about World War II. and sure. let's. I want to first one, a uh, two of D-Day. With this, uh, I was reading about the beaches, the different mm. beaches. So we have Normandy, right? And then the, the yeah. Normandy coast. Reading off of Wikipedia, everybody: Utah, Omaha, <laughs> Gold, Juno, <Juneau>, and Sword. <laughs> Like were right. those the real names Or were those like operational names
2: Those are operational names
1: Yeah
0: So like why Like who decided well, Utah and Omaha And like who like Who makes those operational names Are those the generals or like You know Because yeah, I'm going there's uh, no way Utah Was like a French name <laughs> you know, right. Yeah. something The
2: opposition yeah, so... won't figure out Right. So what happens is those codenames are usually determined by the planning staff. It could be the G3 who would be like the chief of operations or it can be um, anyone who has any type of decision-making authority within the plans and operations, uh, staff of a higher headquarters. And, um, you know, uh, there are many different reasons why all of these different codenames are selected. And uh, sometimes they take a particular theme um, sometimes uh, they are re- really just random and arbitrary. You know, sometimes they can even take the names of, like, wives and daughters of, uh, you know, who's ever on the planning staff.
1: Um,
2: but uh, they, they are always pretty colorful, and uh, there's always a bit of a twist of humor to them. Um, mm. By way of example, I can tell you that during the Gulf War, um, for the units who were on the front line in both books, I wrote about 73 Easting. You know, mm-hmm. you, you had those different phase lines across the desert and all of those phase lines were named after popular beer brands. And then, <laughs> uh, 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 of course that. in sky Skybra- <laughs> right. Yeah. And cool. then of course in Skybreak you had all of the different flight formations and each of them had a particular call sign. And uh probably as a as a probably as a bit of geopolitical satire, they gave a lot of those flight formations Names uh, uh, after famous petroleum companies, you know, like mm. you had one flight whose whose name was Pennzoil, yet another flight whose name was Sitco. and uh, you know, I I, I can see yeah. the sardonic humor therein, you know, because a mm. lot of the vocal opposition to the Gulf War was that oh, it's going to be a war for oil, and you know, we're just oh, okay. doing this, you know, for the benefit of the petroleum companies. So I'm willing to bet that somebody on the Air Force planning staff said, well, you know what, if that's the card you guys want to play, we're going to take it, we're going to have fun with it, we're going to call yeah. our flight formations, you know, Exxon and Mobile, and, you know, ha-ha. You that's know? funny.
0: That's, that's yeah. amazing because <laughs> it is. Funny. Well, it's interesting, like, um, people, when, when botanists and, you know, ecologists find animal and plant species, they'll start naming them, and they rename mm-hmm. plants and animal and bird species, just for the heck of it, because I've done one more study, so I'm renaming the bird. Like, well, yeah, but it's not and I'll rename it after my granddaughter. And who cares about the <laughs> the name of where it comes from? No, it's this now. It's like, okay, well, your granddaughter is now a frog. Okay. So it's kind of it's it's a, well, it's a true thing. It's really interesting where they you know it's this etymology Wait, sometimes it doesn't are make cute. a clear sense, but it but it's it's humorous and people do have yeah. like a sense of humor, like you're saying. It's interesting. The other thing is on D-Day, the casualties seem to be pretty brutal for both sides, for the Germans and for oh, the yeah. Allies. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, because it was full yeah, frontal. Sure I mean. Yeah, I mean, it was coming from all sides on both sides, but know? it
0: helped the allies, you know, so it was a positive, but it was like, wow, um, did this help Eisenhower, do you think, become president with his, what he did in World War II?
2: Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Because when yeah, when he was on the campaign trail, uh, that was pretty much everyone's go to. It's like, hey, here's the architect of victory in Europe. And mm-hmm. uh, when he had made the decision to run for president, he was actually courted by both of the major parties. Both the Democrats and mm-hmm. the Republicans wanted him to run on their ticket. And I'm just thinking, wow, to myself, man, what are the chances of that <laughs> happening today you hell know not. um
1: no, yeah so no. uh, yeah
2: yeah so he <laughs> was already a national hero and mm-hmm. you know it, it it certainly comes as no surprise that uh he won a landslide victory both times in 52 and 56 because yes. uh you know i mean there were there were so many people across the country and across the world even who said yes this is the man who was the architect of our Allied victory in Europe. So yeah, mm-hmm. heck yeah, we want him to be our president. Like yeah, you know? I
1: said, totally my grandmother was like, he, we wouldn't be free today if it wasn't she for him. him. She just, huh. she, it, I mean, I just heard so many stories
0: about it. Like,
1: yeah, and and you have to give him credit for everything that he did. Of course, with everybody else who did what they were supposed to do and did it well. Mm-hmm. But she mm-hmm. just was Eisenhower was the he's the person who made it happen in her mm. eyes, I'm mm. sure there are others,
0: yeah I mean there's, right. of court but I but. mean he seems to stand out for so many things. I know we did a show mm. on him, and um you did a cool video that was cool, Mike, what you did with the mm. podcast by the way, and it's on Facebook oh, I mean, thanks, go, thanks. everyone go on mm. mike's uh, uh Facebook page, his author page. And check out the video you made out of the podcast. Mm. And then he puts us all in sepia and like I'm like that's cool. It's cool, yeah. much better sepia. lighting for us. Thank you. Um, but but honestly, I was trying to
2: give it a 70s vibe. Yeah, oh, like
0: thank that. you. Uh, but <laughs> but honestly, when you when you look at um, what he did and and you know I, I even think we did what an hour show on him and we still didn't even get mm. into everything because you know. Oh, you sound so And then I'm nice. like. I mean, even the other day, Nancy and I drove from Washington State to just north of Seattle, down to Lubbock, Texas. And half of the rest areas we stopped, it was like, this is the, I he was more in Idaho of all places. It was, mm-hmm. this is Eisenhower Highway rest stop mm-hmm. area. And I was like, no way. I was going to text you, like, look, Mike, Ike is here. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. like, everywhere <laughs> we go now. It's like, okay, yeah. I get it. You're the interstate man, you know. But it's, a, it's really amazing like I I just keep finding you know like Fremont by the way we've done so much on Fremont it's I don't know if, I, I mean we'll spend days putting him up on the map you know mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting how certain people have these influences um mm-hmm. you know in history like you know Fremont and and you know we were in Oregon with our friend and she says do you know this Fremont guy did this and this and I'm like Dude, you gotta go yeah. listen to our interview with Mike. <laughs> uh-huh. Check this out. You know, how these people settle and do things like mm-hmm. set, not settle. He didn't settle. He like helped well, I don't know. Can't he's a whole other character, but honestly, Eisenhower, it's amazing what he did. And like you said, like World War One, he was on the American land and then next, you know, here he goes, you know, with World War Two what he did. Are you going to do the Combat Diaries True Stories from the Front Lines of World War 2 like a part 2? Because
2: Oh yeah.
0: I'm thinking. Cool. When we were putting this show together, I was like looking at World War 2 and thinking about all the Huge. books you've written, you know, you've you've done the, you know, the stories about the tanks and, you know, the Pacific Theater mm-hmm. and and just even our recent travels being on the West Coast and seeing, you know, these monuments and it just really strikes home of the warfare for World War II there. And then, you know, we've been in the desert where World War II, Louisiana and all these different places, but it just feels like, and then you think about all the Navajo code talkers and you think about just how many people really were in this war. Mm -hmm. Like how, like when you think about it, is there documentation of, how many people were in it versus like or there's like the countries that were kind of off in tribal lands, but then like I think everyone was in, impacted. Like it was really big. Yeah, the whole. When world. I just think about our travels in this country and how we keep bumping into World War Two things, I'm like, this is this is insane. Like, like how the, many places?
1: It, it yeah, like
0: the battle between right and
1: wrong. Yeah. So freedom or no freedom. Dictatorship it's, it's, versus freedom. Yeah, Democracy you, Versus
3: with everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in nursing into your busy day. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Balance online coursework and in-person, local clinical, practicum, or immersion hours as you work towards graduation while leaving room for what matters. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Somebody
1: by... Name names, but we all know who I'm thinking about. But but no, um, but,
0: it's, but it's it's when you think about how this really impacted the world, and we're just talking about America. From what we've Nancy and I, in our travels lately, you've got to think. I mean, just if you go to France, you're going to see things. If you go to Germany, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. right? So this is so big. You could you could just keep going for years on it, couldn't you? Sharing well, these stories,
2: theoretically, yeah yeah mm-hmm. you know wow. and uh you know, it, it's uh it's one that is probably not going to get uh its true justice for several years to come just because mm-hmm. there are so many great stories out there and uh you know there're so many there are so many different perspectives mm-hmm. from w- which you could tell the story of World War II, um, but uh, yeah, the combat diaries, this first um, this first volume that just came out, really, I'm intending it to be an entire anthology. You know, at the very mm-hmm. least, I foresee four different volumes, and oh, the oh. successive volumes are going to be focusing on specific theaters of the war. You know, I'm trying to I construct volume two to be focusing exclusively on the European theater. And uh, you know, then wow. volume three gonna be focusing uh, exclusively on the Pacific and I
3: wanna mm-hmm. dedicate
2: at least one volume to the China Burma India Theater as well. Mm. And wow. uh, you know, there are probably a few different uh takes and a few different um uh a few different focal points that I want for any successive volumes. But uh this um <laughs> uh this anthology as it stands right now. I mean it is far from over and uh <laughs> yeah, I intend to uh put more stories out there for uh, for as long as I have the means to do it.
1: Awesome. awesome. I love like that didn't... because we need to know. And, I mean, we owe these people. We owe these people our freedom. Mm-hmm. We seriously owe these people. And I love what you're doing because um, otherwise stories.
0: we wouldn't know. But it's the stories of people, you know, the common man signing up to really do something mm-hmm and ending up in something way bigger than they think, or, you know, or they really, you know, knew what they want. You know what I mean? It's a, um, everyone's story is different. And, you know, I just, I think we, we, we need the stories out there for prevention. (laughs) I'm just going to say, you know, our doctors always talk about prevention and, you know, I think that's important. And, you know, when I just why I was just saying it's just it's so big. And when you think about the different theaters like you're talking about, I even find it interesting that the word theater is used, you know, because it it is. It's like this is where the show went down. You know, it's like mm-hmm. this was the stage. This is where it happened. And all the armor changes and the, you know, it, it just changes according to the land and people had to fight uh according to the different landscapes, you know, whether you have cows and chickens or swamps <laughs> in Vietnam, but that's a different war, but you know what I mean? It, it really is. Uh, right. It's pretty crazy. I, I'm glad you're going to do more of that. Um, Cause it really is uh, impressive what you you're doing. And we're just so glad dude, you're rocking it. So here's my last question, Mike, <laughs> <laughs> these are stupid questions. That's it. That's, just call that the show that on um, these wars you know what it's it's um i think we're all at a different level of understanding different wars and especially as generations you know we're moving into newer generations and you know newer wars right so i think that's really what's so important about this too but we're going to close with the song Tokyo Rose and as soon mm-hmm. as i heard the last time you were on the show about <laughs> you guys playing ACDC in your tanks, right? <laughs> this is... Some, yeah. So you guys, you rigged your phones up, like, to play ACDC in the tanks? Seriously. Yeah, they
2: were... Yeah, they were our... They they, they were actually our first-generation iPods, you know, those, those bulky ones that <laughs> came out close to 20 years ago. Yeah, so we found out <laughs> a way to splice the wires of them and then oh. route them through the tank center con system. Yeah. Pretty so fun. So now,
0: do you... Do you like ACDC? Oh, sure. Now, do you like Metallica? (laughs) Uh,
2: Less than ACDC, but yes, I do.
0: Okay. (laughs) It's very important.
2: Pretty cool.
3: Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: So now I want to play this song, Tokyo Rose. It's from a band Riot Act. And they have been doing, yeah, Metallica style, but uh, they have been going for years and um, changed names over time a gazillion times, and there's like two versions of the band now, but we just interviewed uh, Rick Ventura and if you can see it on blend radio and TV, uh, dot com uh, Go type in riot act. And their latest album is closer to the flame and Tokyo Rose is on one of the songs. And we were on, you know, interviewing him like, well, we've got to play this when, you know, Mike does his, <laughs> you know, D-Day show. We're playing Tokyo Rose. And then I know we've done spies, and we've done segments with you about spies, and the, we've done the doll woman spy and doll shop mm-hmm. spy, you know. We've done, like, you know, Julia Child, the spy. I love that. Um, mm-hmm. But Tokyo Rose, I always thought was one person until I started getting into it today. And I'm like, she was like a whole bunch of women out there putting up <laughs> propaganda. There was just not one Tokyo Rose. She had a whole little Gaggle, I'm going into the gaggles, now my words. No, <laughs> the
1: gaggle it would be of, of roses
0: out there. No. So peddle. there were like a it was like a bunch of gossipers out there, right? Putting out propaganda during World War Two. Oh sure. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. So this was on the Japanese side now, right? So this uh-huh. is what's so crazy about World War Two. You have Germany doing mm-hmm. this, now Japan's doing this on this side, right? So tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about Tokyo Rose. It did start with one woman, right?
2: Yeah, well, you had Tokyo Rose in Japan, and then you had Axis Sally, who w- was on mainland Europe, and, uh, yeah, those those were two propaganda DJs, and, uh, yeah, they their sole purpose in life was to broadcast all of these statements uh, that were intended to demoralize Allied troops, uh, mm-hmm. saying anything as outlandish as, you know, hey, uh... You know your girlfriends are are all sleeping with Hollywood celebrities, or you know (laughs) the Statue of Liberty got blown up, or uh, you know uh, you you know uh, your your sister unit, however many miles away, was destroyed by this Axis unit, and if you allies know what's good for you, you should surrender right now, kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. They, they, you know, a lot of Mm -hmm. them were you know just so outlandish that. Nobody really took them seriously, and uh, I think they had more of a comedic value than anything else, um, but uh, one of the CD underbellies to that was that, uh, you know, um, what was that, Axis Sally and Tokyo Rose, uh, mm-hmm. on the odd occasion, they actually got some assistance from captured Allied troops uh, because... Mm. Uh, you know, some of the uh, some of the Allied POWs were given special favors and also al- also given better accommodations in exchange for broadcasting anti-American sentiments over the mm-hmm. airwaves. You know, and uh, that was a that was a very um, that was a very effective negotiating tool for a lot of mm-hmm. POWs to say, hey, if you don't want to be if you don't want to rot in this POW camp. Just uh, find the statement here that says you agree to make Mm -hmm. uh, anti-American statements over the airwaves and we'll put you in a nice hotel with fresh clothes and three square meters a day. You'll be treated with much more dignity Mm -hmm. and affection than any other, any other POW, you know, provided you make all of these, uh, provided you make all of these defamatory statements against your country. Well, you know, most of the POWs, essentially just Uh-oh. spat in their eye and said no, hey forget yeah. it, you know. I mean, I'm not going to do that. Uh but some ultimately took the bait and uh yeah, they they ended up doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. So. That's crazy. So okay, so I I to I know we did a whole show on POWs, uh camps and soldiers and what they went through and um it was mostly Vietnam. And remember we were talking about the Hilton Hanoi, right? So mm-hmm. Years ago, we did a show, and when you were talking about it, and then like later I went and looked at the images of the Hilton Hanoi, mm-hmm. and we did a world radio party about 10, 12 years ago, and one of our guests called in from Vietnam, from the Hilton Hanoi, and I'm like, in the whole time you're on this show, I'm like going, dude, this is so weird. Like I didn't want you to say anything, but I'm saying it on the show now. What the hell is it? Why is it the Hilton? Was, I mean, what what was it like? The original hotel at that time, or was it not a hotel? Why is it a Hilton? Like, sorry. <laughs> because I know this is
1: a well, stupid question, but I'm going with like, they were being sarcastic. With, <laughs> really. Yeah, The Hilton yeah. was the Hilton was like the pseudonym for the best of the best, <laughs> and they're being sarcastic. Huh. Like we're in a basically.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we're back to that again. Less
1: than less cool. than less. So okay. uh, we're I sitting it. here. I got yeah.
0: it yeah. okay. I got it. I, I got it not <laughs> to say a word I get I the humor. Say. I'm all in the because no, okay. I I go there with my brain, but I'm going <laughs> like I don't know if they would have done that then, you know, I don't know. So that's cool, but like our friend really did call him from some fancy Hilton like he sent us photos. I'm like, that's and I'm looking at the photos of Hilton and I'm going, That's not the same hotel. <laughs> that's no, not the same. See, I am blonde. I'm just saying. So, you know. Okay. Sorry, Mike.
1: <laughs> well, it's a different generation. Okay. Your well, generation. Well, no, I have to
0: ask. Come on. How many people would ask? Right? You know, so there it is. All right. There's there's it's my stupid generation. question of the day. There it is. Mm. That's the perfect stupid question. So, everyone, <sighs> keep up with Mike Guardia at MikeGuardia.com. <laughs> you on Amazon. I'm never going to live this down. Am I? Uh, never. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> no. <laughs> I had to, I had to ask that. Everyone, again, the book is The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II. I'm really never going (laughs) to do
1: it. Seriously?
0: Oh, well. (laughs) BigBlendRadio.com is the website. Mike is on every first Monday. The next one is Fourth of July, so we're going to do a segment. And... um, We're going to talk about the Fourth of July, Mike. We're going to learn about that, and I promise not to have any stupid questions. (laughs) Like, (laughs) the tea that they sent overboard before that on December sixteenth was that tea bags? (laughs) No, no, I know it wasn't the tea bags. I know it was tea bricks. I do know. I do know bricks of tea. It was Mm -hmm. tea bricks. They they did throw overboard on the six. It was either the sixth or the sixteenth of December. When they said, hey, that's enough of that. Anyway, that was before July 4th. (laughs) Right, Mike? (laughs) Am I getting this right anywhere close? Uh oh. Uh -oh. I am in so Uh much trouble. Uh oh. Uh oh.
2: -oh. Stay tuned. We'll circle back to that one.
0: Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. Mike will be back on for our 4th of July show, so stay tuned for that. And here it is. We're going to play Tokyo Rose again from Riot Act uh from their latest album, Closer to the Flame. Thank you so much, Mike, and thank you for putting up with my stupid (laughs) questions.
2: Thank you, ladies. Always a pleasure. I love you. You Take
0: care. care. Here it it is everyone. Tokyo Rose.